electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Monday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla. Deirdre is off. Today, Elon declines Twitter's board invitation, so there's a hostile takeover ahead. Then, SailPoint shares surge as Tomo Bravo takes another cybersecurity company private. Later, Mark Wahlberg on crypto, media distribution, and Warner Brothers Discovery. But... Carl, a lot to get to today. Yeah, Twitter's where we're going to begin, guys, uh, as Elon remains the company's largest shareholder, but won't take that board seat after all. That means that Musk is no longer restricted to that 14.9% stake in the company. So is a takeover in Twitter's future. Joining us to discuss, The Verge editor-in-chief, Neelay Patel. Neelay, it's great to have you to help us kick off the hour. Uh, Agrawal uh, does say to tune out the noise and says there could be distractions ahead. What do you think that means? I think you're looking at Elon declining a board seat and spending the weekend tweeting that Twitter is dying, uh, that they should empty out the headquarters in San Francisco and turn it into a homeless shelter, that Twitter Blue is a bad product, basically trashing the company that he's now the largest shareholder in. Uh, I do think that he's going to probably try to increase his stake. And I think that employees at Twitter are increasingly nervous that the stock price swings, that this drama is going to steer them off track when... I'll just point this out. There's an election coming up, and that's when uh, scrutiny of Twitter is always at its highest. Yeah. Uh, Agrawal's tweet references a background check. Uh, do you think that he's suggesting that somehow some part of this process went awry? Well, no, because he said they were, the, the seat was set to take effect on April 9th. Uh, so if you look at Elon filed a new 13G today, it said uh, he was going to pass a background check uh, and do his director and officer's questionnaire, and he declined. He did, didn't take it. He didn't do any of it. So I think maybe uh, really what it seems like is they wanted him on the board to be a, you know, a fiduciary to the shareholders and employees of the company, and he decided that what he wanted was more drastic change. He didn't want that role inside. He wanted to be the disruptor from the outside, so he didn't take it. I don't think... Who can't do a background check on Elon Musk? It's all on his Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where the good stuff is, right? And, you know, I mean, the, the way I see it, two likely reasons Elon wouldn't want to join Twitter's board. One, he doesn't want to be muzzled by fiduciary responsibility to Twitter. Uh, and, you know, Saturday certainly seemed to be one of those days when he was tweeting stuff that a board member wouldn't tweet. And the other is, yeah, maybe he wants to own more than 15% of the company. But the reason why both of these, I think, are potentially bad for Twitter shareholders is, in either case, in the near term, maybe even the medium term, the stock's probably going down from here. I mean, if you're Elon and you want to buy Twitter, you don't want to tell everybody you're buying Twitter because the stock's going to go up. You want to drive the price down, have your friends buy it, and get control that way, like you were trying to you know, put together land parcels for a headquarters deal. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Twitter is now in firmly in meme stock territory. If you are a retail investor or a meme stock buyer and you think Elon's going to buy it, you might be incentivized to get in early. So I actually have no idea 
how demand for this stock is going to go if conventional wisdom out there is Elon is prepping some massive takeover to rescue the company. That might in turn drive demand. It's impossible to know with the meme stock. And it might, like I said, divorce the company from its fundamentals while its employees are in an extraordinarily uh, high-pressure time ahead of an election. But, Neil, let me put it this way. Do you see any reason why Elon Musk would want the price of Twitter to go up before Twitter makes all the product changes that he wants? I don't see one. Yeah, I don't see that either. I'm just saying I think that I don't think that he can drive it down if what he's uh, indicating is an interest in buying more, right? I think that will bring his followers along with him. So I think that's just a tricky play overall. Yeah, Nile, we can try to play mind reader uh, with uh, Elon Musk's motivations and talk about uh, his ability to drive the stock price up or down. But regardless, he is drawing attention to the platform. And I wonder if you think that's going to start to show up in some of the metrics this quarter. Uh, potentially, uh, you know, Twitter has just had flat growth for the longest time. It is not an easy platform to come on and use. You know, everyone has played amateur Twitter product manager for the life of the platform. Uh, my friend Casey Newton, your friend Casey Newton, describes it as the Bluth company. It is successful despite its management challenges, despite the product errors they've made, despite the forays and the things like live sports streaming or whatever they wanted to do. It's successful because a very small group of people uses it as though they're completely addicted to it. It is not successful because a lot of people find it accessible or fun to use. That has always been their challenge, that you can get the media and politicians and celebrities to use it, but the average person finds it completely incomprehensible. And anything you do to make it more comprehensible makes it worse for the power users. That has always been the <laughs> dynamic of Twitter. So I think, like, if you're... I mean, I have 10,000 amateur product manager thoughts for Twitter. I'm sure you all do, too. If you're Elon, you've got the money to say, I'm just going to buy the company and do what I want. It's still not a guarantee that you can solve that essential conflict that has been inherent to Twitter since it started. Yeah. Neil, I have people I love, you know, like my mom, my wife, my kid, I tell them to stay off Twitter, right? It's like, it's like the bad neighborhood of social. Like Anything can happen there. You can get your wallet taken. Somebody could hit you with a rock randomly, right? So, I mean, as much as we talk about Facebook, you know, Facebook, it's fine. As long as you're not going to go down some conspiracy rabbit hole, Facebook's fine. Your friends are there. You know, call me before, call me when you need a ride home. But Twitter, like, don't, don't go in that neighborhood, kids. Yeah, you know, just broadly, what is the big f criticism of Facebook is the algorithm. What does the algorithm do for Facebook? It creates a bubble around you. Right? It shows you things that you, it thinks you might like. It shows you your friends and family. It shows you your groups. It is not you facing context collapse to the entire world, which is effectively the promise of Twitter. Any random tweet might go viral. And if you've ever had a tweet go viral, you know it's like one of the worst things that can happen to you. Right? Suddenly a million people are in your face saying that you're a bad person. Like That is the experience <laughs> of a tweet going viral. Can you solve that problem? by reducing the moderation controls or saying you're gonna adhere to the principles of free speech, which really means nothing outside of a legal context. It's all just competing speech. I don't know. And also I would point out, if you're committed to a problem that really no one has solved for 10 years, what you're not doing is shipping cyber trucks. I have the only shipping cyber truck behind me. It's an RC car. So I, I just like Elon, that's a big distraction from uh, one company that needs to ship way more cars, needs to expand globally and fight off supply chain challenges and international uh, uh, war challenges. 
And also he's got SpaceX, which needs to launch rockets to a space station that is half yes. run by Russia. So I don't know why you want this distraction that no one has been able to solve. Which is why this morning, Nilay, uh, the B of A desk writes, uh, quoting here, have also had several wonder when Musk decides to sell, i.e., is he really interested? What's his duration here? Uh, sure seems like the intensity of interest will be hard to sustain. Uh, and certainly that makes sense given the other bigger, arguably, responsibilities he has. Yeah. And, I, you know, again, no one has really been able to solve this problem with Twitter in particular and with social media broadly. Right. Social media is fundamentally a content moderation business. And the real solve for all of the First Amendment challenges or free speech challenges that people perceive in the world is a diversity of platforms with multiple moderation schemes where people can choose in the market which product, which content moderation product they prefer to engage with. It is not lumping all of your energy and attention onto one company that appears to be the center of the universe, but is actually the smallest social media platform with the least reach. It just has the most celebrities on it. So I think that dynamic, once you actually spend your time looking at it, you realize, oh, this is kind of an unsolvable problem with limited upside outside of celebrities. And I'm already one of the most famous and the richest person in the world. I don't need to waste my time with this. <laughs> Mele, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. It could get more interesting from here, for sure. Uh, thanks so much. Good to see you. Always good to tell. Now, speaking of control, Shopify announcing a 10-for-1 stock split to make, quote, share ownership more accessible to all investors. The e-commerce company also seeking approval for a founder share for CEO Toby Lutke, which would raise his total voting power to 40%. Important to keep in mind, shares have fallen by more than half since January. Carl, uh, Shopify still leading this revolution in e-commerce, the idea that they are arming small and medium businesses with the tools to compete with Amazon. Now they're trying to push further into logistics. And I guess Lutke wants, um, you know, more leverage to pursue what could be, you know, profit delaying um, strategies for the time being. Yep. Uh, it's been a while since we've talked about founders' shares, uh, as this thing is called, and, and he'll be uh, able to hold as long as he's a, a director or a member of management or anything like that. But it does seem, John, to be uh, sort of one more data point we have in corporate responses to what is increasingly an activist environment. Uh, yes. In this case, uh, I think Shopify and some others are laying out an argument that this is one of those revolutionary moments um, where you have to take uh, actions that are unpopular with shareholders in order to secure the future, right? And with the stock down as much as it is, perhaps this is one of those times when uh, investors are, are going to get an opportunity to make a bet that, you know, to the upside or the downside is going to have some significant implications from here. Yeah, and we'll be paying attention during earnings season for implications about the consumer spend. Meantime, speaking of all of this, turning to some tech M&A, SailPoint shares surging this morning as the cybersecurity company agrees to a $6.9 billion buyout from private equity firm Toma Bravo. It's not the only software name getting bought this morning. Kaseya also announcing a plan to acquire software maker Datto for $6.2 billion. Vista Equity getting a nice payout there after acquiring nearly 70% of Datto back in 2017. These, of course, are just the latest tech companies to be taken private amid the falling valuations across the space, although it's been pointed out Toma Bravo, John, has been especially active trying to keep this space afloat almost single-handedly. Yeah, and Carl, we just had Orlando Bravo on Tech Check last week talking about 
exactly this and the idea that now is a time to take certain companies and prepare them to either scale up by adding things to them or you know also operationally streamline them uh, to be public not too far down the line. So interesting to me, as you've got the likes of Toma Bravo taking companies private, you've also got public companies buying companies from private equity. Um, you know, we, we talked uh, with NetApp, uh, George Curian, about that last week. So uh, a bit of this shuffling and putting together of pieces for long-term strategy. In a way, this fits in with what Shopify is trying to do as well, but with logistics and long-term planning, not as much with M&A. All right. And as for SailPoint, uh, John, just one more light being shown on the cyberspace uh, and uh, the appetite to find properties that will help companies uh, resist what we think at least theoretically could be a more difficult environment uh, regarding security on online. It hasn't gotten any easier <laughs> over the past years that we've been following it for sure, Yeah, Carl. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, a downgrade for NVIDIA, TikTok's dominance, and later, Mark Wahlberg. Big hour of Tech Check. Just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Get a gut check on the new Warner Brothers Discovery. Today's the first day of trading post-merger, and Deutsche likes what they see. They call the entertainment giant their new top pick in media, says it's one of the best-positioned companies in the global streaming industry. They're not the only ones pretty bullish this morning. Both Atlantic and Evercore upgrade the stock as well. Shares did start the day higher, but they have flattened back, uh, currently down about a half a percent. John, good interview with uh, uh, Michael Nathanson from Moffitt, uh, writes for Discovery. The vision, the vision of the future was clear to do the deal, now comes the hard part that's executing on this strategy, neutral rating, uh, targeted 27. It's quite a, a basket of properties they have, but I wonder how they're going to approach this you know, subscription versus advertising balance in digital that seems to have shifted pretty rapidly over the last couple of quarters, um, you know, as we've been talking about it, as inflation has spiked and seemingly consumers are less willing to, to continue, you know, working over subscription dollars for so many services, Carl. Yeah, uh, not to mention the international growth possibilities, John. That's been sort of the classic streaming story. Strengthen uh, domestically leads the companies to do more overseas, and we'll see if that plays into this as well. Yep. And meantime, uh, moving on to chips, tracking weakness in the semiconductors with the NASDAQ down nearly 2%. Four of the largest U.S. chip makers, NVIDIA, Intel, and AMD, and Micron, losing a combined $110 billion in market value last week. NVIDIA is down more than 5% uh, just this morning off of a downgrade, about 5.5%. Wedbush analyst Matt Bryson joins us now to discuss Matt, you, you've got an outperform on AMD, underperform on Intel, and a neutral on NVIDIA, which suggests to me you think that going forward, uh, AMD's worth more than Intel. Um, I, I, I do. I, I think that the, this, well, 
my my struggle with Intel is that they have a long road ahead of them in terms of turning around their their product set, and in the meantime, AMD is going to continue to take share, particularly in the data center. And, and so, just in terms of relative performance, I, I think AMD has a, has a much easier path over the next couple of years. So, what's the most compelling growth story in semiconductors? right now, do you think? I hear a lot from the likes of Marvell about the potential in the cloud, um, you know, to, to really drive progress there as hyperscalers look for customization. But, and and you, you look at the slowdown in PC sales, uh, potentially, but then graphics is still an important segment. What, what's the theme that you think investors should pay most attention to? So I, I think there's a few different themes. Um, I, I think certainly there is the, the shift to EV. Um, there is greater investment in artificial intelligence. Uh, there's the growth of IoT, so the Internet of Things. I, I think all of those will be drivers. Um, among my favorite names, uh, Taiwan Semi, uh, they are the arms dealer for all of the fabulous companies that are making those solutions. But even with NVIDIA, I, I think they have a great future three, four, five years ahead. They're leading in a number of those segments. Their issue is is both it's it's really expensive stock, um, but also right now, um, certainly you, you, we do soon, soon seem to be seeing the beginning of a correction um, in the client gaming side of things. Yeah, that's certainly uh, Baird's point today. We believe order cancellations recently started in consumer GPUs driven by excess inventory, a slowdown in consumer demand, reflected by ongoing reduction in graphic cards pricing. And do you see anything wrong with that sort of picture of the client uh, demand uh, environment right now? The, the really difficult thing to understand is crypto um, has been a, a significant component, I, I believe, both in... Uh, the demand for client GPUs over the last couple of years, uh, similar to what we saw in 2018. Um, and and it's, it's really difficult to understand once NVIDIA makes a chip and ships it out to the card vendors, where exactly that, that product ends up. So I, I look at a world where four weeks ago, if I was trying to buy a part at Best Buy, it, it didn't exist. Now, you, you go on Best Buy's website, you can get any any type of GPU you want. And so I, I certainly think that there has been some shift over the last month versus the last two years where you just couldn't buy a client graphics card. Hmm. Now, semiconductor equipment makers have been warning that supplies are still tight. Who among the uh, semiconductor players is best positioned to weather that sort of environment through their demonstrated ability to be front of the line for this equipment and manage inventory the best? So I, I don't know that there's a, any particular company that, that's going to do a, a better job. Obviously, Taiwan Semi is, is great operationally. Um, they are the largest single consumer of, of capital equipment out there. Um, so I, I, I think they're going to do a great job. But I, I think the, the larger point is that as long as capital equipment is constrained, it, it makes it very difficult for the fabs to over-order um, and, I mean, and over-build. Not, not even just the fabs, but some people get better allocation from TSMC than others. And, you know, there's a question of the likes of, you know, Intel 
how much equipment are they going to get? So what have we learned over the past couple of years on uh, who, who gets their order first? I, I, I think with these companies, generally, it's, it's when you put your order in, um, as opposed to uh, necessarily an Intel or a TSM being able to, to jump to the, the beginning of the line. Um, certainly on the fabulous side of things um, or certain IDMs, you are able to pay a premium to get expedited shipping. So if you are a larger consumer, um, and I'd certainly say Apple is is perhaps the best in the business at managing their supply chain, they tend to get chips first. But but I think from a semiconductor capital equipment standpoint, it's all about how you manage your operations as opposed to I'm the biggest buyer I, I get I get capital equipment ahead of everyone else. All right, Matt, thank you. Nothing but rainy returns for cloud stocks this year. Don't miss a read on demand with software company Appian coming up next. Stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. TikTok is big and getting bigger. The app's ad revenue is going to triple this year compared to 2021 and grow 6x by 2024, at least according to a new forecast from Insider Intelligence. By next year, TikTok would leapfrog Snapchat and Twitter. Its ad business will make more revenue than those two companies combined. And it could even take on a Goliath in the space. If it continues this growth trajectory, it would rival YouTube in revenue by 2024. Google and Meta still rule the global ad market for now, with 29 and 21% of the market, respectively. But TikTok's growing fast. Remember last week, uh, Piper Sandler released its teen survey, which showed TikTok as the top social media network for the first time, Carl. Um, I did a bit of a panel a few weeks ago with the uh, IAB with uh, TikTok's heads of U.S. And the strategy that they have, the tools they've built in, for co-creation, where brands offer content and actually encourage, in a way, um, the users to steal it and iterate on it, a big part of their differentiation and their growth. We'll see if that can continue. Yeah, that, that's sort of uh, the point of uh, this data, is that uh, they have found a way to make things go viral in ways that maybe some other platforms haven't yet figured out, whether that's the rolling continuity of product or the ability to take a brand and morph it to the creator's vision, not the, not the company's vision. Um, but overall, John, uh, still a small share of digital ad spend just shows you the size of the big players. They can run into walls, though. You know, it's one thing projecting trajectories as if these things are operating in isolation but there are competitive dynamics at play here. There's also the question, you know, if you're the richest guy in the world, if you're Elon Musk, why are you stirring things up at Twitter when there are other social networks that are both bigger and growing a heck of a lot faster? <laughs> it's an interesting 
to me, that's an interesting question, Carl. Yeah, I can think of a couple potential answers, but we'll save it for another time. Uh, John, it's a match for uh, Loop Capital this morning. They love the online dating company. They go take it to buy, target a 140. Morgan Stanley also called the company a top recession pick on Friday. Time to get it back out there. Tech Check is back in two. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. Stocks are decidedly lower this morning. Dow is down uh, 205. Nasdaq down almost 2%. You got Nvidia leading the, leading the declines along with AMD on the back of some higher yields. Mark Wahlberg is going to join us in a moment for an interview to talk about entertainment and media. But first, time for a news update with Sarsima Modi. Hey, Sima. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Broadening COVID lockdowns in China are hitting world oil prices. U.S. and international crude benchmarks are down about 4%. Selling pressure also continues to come from plans to release record amounts of oil from the strategic reserves around the world. Meanwhile, Treasury yields continue to rise, setting fresh three-year highs. This ahead of tomorrow's consumer inflation report. German bond yields are also jumping. The 10-year Bund is trading around 0.8% last time I checked. That's the highest level in nearly seven years. And JetBlue uh, trading higher along with most of the other airlines. This despite the carrier saying it is shrinking its summer flight schedule. JetBlue is trimming its schedule in a bid to avoid flight disruptions as it faces continued labor shortages. JetBlue had significant delays and hundreds of cancellations over the weekend. John, back to you. Seema, thanks. The Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing ETF is on pace for a sixth straight month in the red, its longest decline since it was created. Analysts, though, remain bullish with some ideas for what to buy today. Our Frank Holland explains. Frank? Hey there, John. Uh, you see the ETF up today, but as you mentioned, on pace for a sixth month in the red is cloud stocks. They just face continued pressure from rising interest rates, as well as the geopolitical uncertainty that has many investors really reassessing high valuation cloud names. But the stock moves, they're contrary to the trends. Year to date, cloud spending up more than 30 percent. Cloud investment expected to continue even as the stocks crash. Cloud, it also just has a lot of room for growth with less than half of all workloads on the cloud as opposed to on premise. In Europe, adoption trends, they're lagging the global trends, but security concerns related to the Russia-Ukraine war are expected to be a catalyst for adoption. Analysts say one factor weighing on the stocks is really the concentration of the market. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Alibaba, they have about three quarters of cloud customers globally and are expected to maintain market share even with greater demand for cybersecurity for hybrid work. Loop Capital says with the current volatility, networking systems names are, at least for now, the safest way to play cloud. That includes Arista Networks, down today, but up more than 8% over the last month. Sienna and Juniper Networks, both in line with the S&P over the last month, while those cloud names, they've struggled. John, back over to you. Frank, thanks. Uh, one software name that has been under pressure, located software maker Appian. There's been a lot of investor interest in the space, a number of acquisitions and IPOs. Shares have been crushed since last February, down more than 75%. Recently, we've turned an eye toward valuations. Appian founder and CEO Matt Calkins joins us now to discuss. Matt, welcome. I want to focus on, in on, on this low-code movement that's happening right now and fundamentally what's behind it, the idea that without as much effort and in some cases without as much developer skill, people should be able to make things happen with software. Why? Yeah, that's right. Low-code's a new way to program by drawing a flowchart instead of writing it line by line, and the result is it's a lot faster. With low-code, you and I could be programmers. 
with low code, a lot of people who weren't programmers otherwise, or who had out of date tech skills are going to be able to create their own applications. And that's important because the world needs more applications, needs more innovation. And we also need to move faster. So it's an important moment at the important movement at the right time. Well, this reminds me of more on the consumer and interface side, the web 2.0 move toward using JavaScript to uh, rapidly make the web experience more flexible and iterate more quickly. Is this effectively doing that on the enterprise side? And how do you expect that's going to shift the balance of power in the industry over the next, say, three years? It's going to shift it toward people. It's going to democratize development. And yeah, this is the latest innovation in a long chain of innovations, which have all been been pointing toward making it easier for a person to control a computer. This is just the latest way that we're going to make it more possible for a person to direct and collaborate with technology. Hey, Matt, there's a view among a lot of names uh, in the space that, all right, they did really well during the pandemic and they did well when there was an explosion in the number of, say, small to medium sized businesses. But now maybe it's a period where clients want their software as part of a larger suite. Maybe you need to be part of a large uh, global sales force. And as a result, you need to be consumed by a much larger player. Do you think that's an industry truth right now? You know, sweets versus best of breed, this is a pendulum that's been swinging forever. I think it'll swing back and forth in the future as well. But uh, we're trying to be the best of both worlds. We put together a a full suite to handle processes from beginning to end. And at the same time, we're the pioneer in the low code space. So we are best of breed. So um, how much of this has to do with within this world of big data? It's not so much about just having an algorithm, not even so much about just having a lot of data, but then knowing what to do with it and having the most employees, uh, workers perhaps who are tuned into the company's needs and customer needs, able to get insights from that. Who do you see getting uh, advantage strategically in that kind of environment? You know, you're so right. Most data is wasted because it's not brought to bear at the moment of decision. One of the great things you can get out of a low-code system is it connects to all of your systems and brings that data back at the moment of decision, the moment when you need it. You know, being sure that the person who makes the decision is fully informed. And so, yeah, it's not just whether you have the data, it's whether you can use it, whether you have it at the right moment. And so a framework like this that reconstitutes the fragmented enterprise is more valuable today than ever. In fact, you know, one of the the primary outcomes of the pandemic has been to split us all up. It's to make the enterprise more distributed than ever. Not only the humans, but the data and the customers, we're all so far apart. We need actually a framework to reunite all of those assets so we can work in concert. Um, In this environment where I'm starting to hear more, we're starting to hear more about private company valuations coming down. Are you being acquisitive even on the lower end? And what is that doing to your ability to get the smartest employees hired and in the door? Yeah, Appian's got a unique approach to acquisitions. We've done a few of them in the past couple of years. We buy technology. We don't buy footprints. We don't buy customers. Therefore, we're not looking at the high price tag acquisitions. We're looking at technological accelerators. And, uh, and, and we, can, we can easily afford that. We have cash to do it if we need to. And it's been really successful for us in building out that low-code suite, that end-to-end offering that allows our customers to discover their processes, design them, and automate them in the same product. All right, we'll continue to watch you and the space. Matt Calkins from Appian. Thank you. We're going to keep an eye on Microsoft today as well. Under pressure after UBS said Office 365 growth could start decelerating. Shares down 
almost 10% over a week, uh, a little more than 3.5% today, plus Mark, Wal Mark Wahlberg is next. Tech Check, back in just a moment. Got to watch Bitcoin today, hitting its lowest level since March 21 this morning. Now down about 5%, uh, lower double digits on the year. And that move comes as the 10-year Treasury yield did hit a three-year high overnight. We got to 276. Some other digital currencies, Ether, Solana, Cardano, also taking a hit this morning as investors continue to assess the risks of rising rates and a more aggressive Fed. We're back in just a moment. Our next interview is bringing some good vibrations to Tech Check. Our Julia Boyston joins us this morning with a very, very special guest. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much, Carl. I'm joined now by Mark Wahlberg, actor, producer, entrepreneur. Mark, thanks so much for joining us ahead of your movie, Father Stew, which you produce as well as star in and also helps co-finance that movie opens on Wednesday. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. How are you? We are great. Uh, we're very curious to see your movie, but also curious to hear a little bit about your decision to distribute this movie via Sony in a traditional release model. It's going to be exclusively in theaters. Why does that make sense for this film rather than going to a streamer or doing something different? This this film has to be seen in a theater with an audience, um, you know, to see people laughing and crying and cheering. Um, it's uh, it's definitely made for the theatrical experience, for sure. Uh, I remember because of the pandemic, I hadn't been in a theater for well over a year. And to see the movie uh, play with with a really wide audience for the first time was absolutely amazing. Uh, I've never had a reaction to a film like this in my entire career. The big question wow. should be, well, this is a faith why, would I, why would I break the cardinal Sorry, rule and finance a film myself? Yes, I guess that is a question. It is also a faith-based movie. Uh, you, of course, have st starred in dozens and dozens of more traditional Hollywood films. Uh, and faith-based movies are seen as having a more narrow audience. Do you think you can bring your fan base from movies like Uncharted to this film? Uh, we are definitely trying to reach the widest audience possible. Um, this movie, it, it falls under the faith-based umbrella because uh, Stu's ultimate decision to go into the priesthood, uh, which is, he's like the least likely person to ever go into the priesthood. But that being said, it really is, it's its like a traditional biopic, <clears throat> you know? It's an amazing journey of uh, of this guy really trying to find his, uh, his purpose in life. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of film that you really have to do it at, uh, independently anyway. I didn't want any uh, interference when it came to the creative. I really wanted to tell this the story in the most kind of raw and unapologetic way. Uh, unapologetic way. And the movie also is a rated R, um, and not a lot of faith-based movies are rated R. Uh, indeed. Um, but so this decision to, to finance this movie and take on that risk, what does it say about what you're thinking of doing next? Can we expect you to invest more in this faith-based genre? Um, are you going to keep yes. on acting and producing these kinds of films? I'm putting my money where my faith is for sure. And, uh, you know, I think I think um, making movies like this that are really inspiring and hopefully other stories will come to me. I could whether these are things that I act in or not. I'm definitely uh, headed in that direction where I want to make more faith based content. I think we, we talked about this a little bit off camera last time you were down here at the Stock Exchange, and congratulations on getting this done. You know, you're no stranger to investing, period, or entrepreneurship mm -hmm. or risk. And I'm wondering how it's different in the filmmaking business when so much hard work 
happens before the sale, uh, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, this was definitely a labor of love for everybody involved. Um, but I think these are the kind of movies that people really need right now. Uh, these are the kind of movies that I think are, are encouraging people uh, to come together again. And so um, there's, there's, there's lots of good can come from this film. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Mark, uh, good morning. It's, it's John Fort. I'm curious about you as a creator. Uh, you, you came onto the scene with music. You've done movies, all kinds of other businesses, restaurants, dealerships, et cetera. What's the role uh, of technology for you as a creator and for you as an entrepreneur? How are you using it? In what ways uh, does it have the potential to both make your businesses better and make them more known as you market them uh, in, in this social media era? Yeah, I'm still kind of learning my way around tech. Uh, thankfully, I have a 12-year-old daughter to kind of get me up to speed with everything new and exciting <laughs> in the world. Uh, but I do really rely on her uh, in a lot of ways. And for us, obviously, just keeping everybody in communication, you know, um, and, and being able to recognize when there's real opportunity there, because there's so much synergy between all the different uh, business interests. Um, it's just a really a matter of uh, how we execute. Oh, what impact have you seen on the restaurant industry and your business there. As we've been going through this pandemic, we've seen inflation uh, and, and price spikes, and definitely restaurants have had to think differently about just how they get food to people. Do you lean into delivery and these apps and you know, these, these you know, checkout software suites that are, I'm sure, trying to sell you all, all kinds of product? Do you find that beneficial? Um, yeah, I mean, look, we, we, all of our restaurants were closed down. All of our F45 studios were closed down, but, um, thankfully we've, we've rebounded pretty well. Um, but you know, we, uh, <clears throat> I think people are going to want, we, my brother was such a purist. He wanted everybody to come in and he wanted to make the burger himself. We wanted people to experience wall burgers when they want and where they want. So now with our at home, uh, we have not only retail beef, but a bunch of other products that we have make available at home. So I think, um, you know, we've, we've, we've done a lot with delivery and stuff like that. But, you know, we want people to obviously come to the, to the restaurant and have that sort of experience that we provide, uh, getting the food as fresh as possible. And just all the other content and all the other things that we provide as a, as a, um, as a, as a business that a lot of other people don't do with the celebrity component. Mark, is it, to, to apply that question more broadly to the rest of your businesses, you know, as you think about the reopening, what the future of business looks like post-COVID, now, you know, of course, we have the, the challenge of inflation and things like that. But what's your expectation about people getting back to their lives? I mean, you're betting on people getting back to movie theaters, but do you think people are going to be going back to gyms um, in the same way or just returning to restaurants? What does the future look like? I'm optimistic that people will go back. You kind of need that experience, right? To go, you want to go to a concert, you want to go to a movie theater, you want to go to a restaurant, you know, you want to go to a sporting event, all of those things. Um, if you'd have told me that it was going to be this long, I would have told you you were crazy, but obviously, um, you know, there was no real predicting uh, how long, you know, the pandemic would affect people. And of course now with supply chain and everything else, it's, uh, it's become uh, pretty difficult. Yeah, yeah, certainly. One thing that has uh, seemed to, to have grown dramatically, though, is this streaming business. You know, just today we have the mm -hmm. merger of Warner Brothers and Discovery. They're going to be combining their streaming services. We have Disney and Netflix investing more and more in streaming. You are still betting on movie theaters, but what about all the opportunity there? Are you interested in working more with the streamers? 
I've made I'm, I'm I've made uh, two films with Netflix. I'm about to make another film with Netflix. Um, you know, I completely uh, appreciate that. But I just think certain films for me, I'm going to want to uh, always focus on the theatrical experience. Well, focusing on the theatrical, uh, even as you you bet big on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Mark Wahlberg, ahead of your big opening of, uh, of, of your movie on Wednesday. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. God bless you. I really appreciate it. Great to have him, Julia. Insights on so many things. Now, if you're hungry for more Tech Check exclusives like this one, go to Wahlburgers. No, follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. We're back in a moment. Take another look at Microsoft today, reacting to that new note from UBS warning Office 365 growth could start decelerating. Shares down almost 10% in a week. Growth in general suffering today, but Microsoft the worst performing of some of the bigger tech stocks. Carl, um, you know, it's noting just a few days ago that Microsoft is now more than half a trillion dollars in market cap away from Apple. And yes, there is this Office issue, but they just closed the nuance deal, they've got the Activision uh, Blizzard one kind of on the burner. We'll see where that goes. There are a number of different theses that one could focus on in Microsoft for growth going forward besides Office. Uh, indeed, uh, that's, you know, three and a half percent on Microsoft uh, is going to get your attention. And we mentioned the UBS note. Uh, we now believe it's prudent to begin modeling a gentle deceleration in commercial Office 365 seat growth, uh, given the combination of the pandemic, work from home boost fading and Office 365 penetration into the broader office installed base getting close to 80 percent, John. They do point out, though, that their checks argue that Google Cloud leadership has all but given up on trying to dis displace 365 as the king. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole lot of talk about, you know, Google Docs and, and Sheets like 10, 15 years ago, and it was free and it was going to take over. That's one of those, uh, that's why I'm always cautious. I try to be cautious about these storylines because, you know, on paper, it should have worked. Google was popular, free is popular, but Office, Microsoft managed to shift it to the cloud in a very effective way. Right now they have this consumer deal where you can bundle in the Office apps with some cloud storage and other things for what is it, 100 bucks a year, and they've managed to hold on not only to the corporates, but to enough of consumer that they're getting a paid profitable business. While, yeah, you know, kids in school and whatnot, people are still using Google Docs, but it hasn't become a powerhouse business to challenge Microsoft, Carl. Yeah, uh, we're going to watch that. It's a big reason behind a lot of the big tech, mega cap tech weakness today. Speaking of that, uh, Apple's new reality is underway. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman reports that ahead of June's Worldwide Developers Conference, that while the company's rumored mixed reality headset likely will not make an appearance, uh, beta versions of iOS 16 are, quote, chock full of references to the headset and its interactions with the iPhone. Gurman says this indicates the device will launch during this upcoming iOS cycle between June and fall of 2023. We're going to hear from Tim Cook tomorrow morning as he keynotes the International Association of Privacy Professionals Global Privacy Summit in Washington, D.C. at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We generally, uh, unlike, say, Nikkei reporting, John, tend to follow Gurman pretty closely. We do. And one thing about the software and hardware interaction at Apple, just because it's in the software doesn't mean the hardware definitely shows up. It just means there's the possibility that it could show up, even, maybe even the expectation. But uh, things have been known to come out hardware-wise on their own time, Carl. 
Uh, we'll watch that Apple down as well. Uh, the other story we should probably come back to, of course, is Twitter began the hour with it and Elon Musk saying he's now not joining the board. Twitter is back in the green and Julia has been talking to some analysts and sources this morning and is back with us. Julia. Well, I think the main thing I would focus on, Carl, is the distraction. And Parag Agarwal said in his tweet to employees that this could be a distraction. This will There will be more distraction, but that he wants his employees to stay focused. I think the question is also how much of a distraction it is, not just for employees, as they try to build out all these new revenue streams, but also a distraction for investors. We haven't heard a lot directly from this new CEO. And there's this risk now that Elon Musk really could be the one that ends up determining the narrative around this company going forward. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're a highly skilled technical employee engineer at Twitter right now, do you need this, right? You could go work for whomever, even Elon Musk, I suppose, if you want. Do you need to suffer through these gyrations at Twitter and wondering whose vision is in charge? Yeah, I mean, think about what happened over the weekend. You had Elon Musk tweeting out a number of recommendations for how he wants the subscription service to look. Lower costs, no ads. And then he even attacks the fundamental business model of Twitter, which is having it be ad-supported. So, Carl, you have to wonder, you know, he puts all those ideas out there, then he deletes them. Is this the kind of thing we're going to see all the time coming from Musk now that he's not muzzled because he's not going to be on the board? Yes, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of game theory happening re with regards to Elon's motivations, both short term and long term, guys. Uh, we're just getting started on a very busy week. Of course, CPI uh, tomorrow will be the 10 poll of macro eco data for the week before earnings season and JPM gets us started on Wednesday. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.